Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk, 830 on this Sunday, December seventeenth, 2023. The year is winding down, isn't it, folks? We're just a couple weeks away from uh, the end of the year and 2024 kicking off. In fact, I, I may have even made an error on, you know, writing a check, that sort of thing, where I already wrote 2024. I wish I could continue that into next year. I'm sure all, what I'll end up doing is writing 2023 until about March. Uh, we've all been in that situation before. This is actually a fairly big day. I'm Rob Jerisline, by the way. I publish a little newspaper called Outdoor News, and I'm here every Sunday on WCCO Outdoors, live and local, as we like to say. Uh, so looking forward to spending the next one hour talking about outdoor topics with listeners on this station. Uh, like, I, like I started to say, yeah, uh, December 17th, a number of uh, little seasons wrapping up. You wouldn't think so uh, this late in the year. Uh, we've got the... Um, uh, we had a little special chronic wasting disease hunt down in southeast Minnesota. It ran three days this weekend in a bunch of permit areas down there, not the entire southeast. Uh, that is wrapping up here with sunset today. Uh, and then also there's a season for fishers. Do folks know about fishers? That's a, It's a member. It's an upland member of the, uh, it's a mustelid, member of the weasel family. Uh, fairly big, tough, tough critter, uh, bigger about the size, maybe a little bigger than a cat. I think they've even been known to chase domestic cats around a time or two. I think they're expanding in the state. Uh, my dad, as I've mentioned before, has got a little spread in southeastern Minnesota. He's got trail cameras up. Uh, I think he has seen a fisher or two in uh, on his property, not very often. I think some of his friends and neighbors also have seen them. Uh, historically, a species that we associated more with the North Woods, uh, there's a similar species called the pine martin, also another member of the weasel family, a little smaller. I think fishers have a reputation as one of the only species that can tackle and consume a porcupine. You've got to be tough, right, to figure out a way to kill porcupines, but fishers are one of the few animals that can do that, it's so therefore foresters like them. Foresters typically do not like porcupines. They have a reputation for eating the bark off the trees that we're trying to grow uh, in, in North Country. Uh, but that's uh, a real short season. You know, it's, I think it's, it's a stable population, but it's, uh, you know, uh, the DNR managers are trying to you know, understand what's going on, why it's not growing more. I think bobcats actually prey on fishers. Uh, I've, I've argued with some other folks about that. They didn't believe me, but there's biologists with the Minnesota DNR who will tell you, yes, that's true, that bobcats will prey on apparently female fishers, and they're young, so there's some research going on with that. I can't remember if we talked about that here or not. But it's a short season. It started like last weekend as the trapping season for fishers, and it ends today. So uh, I had a nice picture on the front of this week's uh, uh, outdoor news of a fisher. I mentioned the pine martin being a cousin, kind of a smaller cousin. My family, we were out in Yellowstone once. We saw a pine martin. and we were, You, know, you kind of do a double take. You're like, what is that? It looks like this really beautiful dark brown squirrel on steroids. Uh, the main thing I think pine martens will eat, actually, are squirrels. They run around up in the trees. You know, some of these other mustelids, other members of the weasel family, you think of mink, you think of muskrats, you think of, well, beavers aren't, aren't mustelids, but you know, other fur bearers uh, are, you associate them with wetlands, right? 
Uh, these guys are more upland. You know, they're more up in the north, the forest. They're up in the trees, uh, and they're that's that's where they're they've carved out a niche. And there's um, I kind of went off on a pine marten and and uh, Fisher rant here, but um, there's a we we outdoor news. We publish a little newspaper out in, in Pennsylvania, also Pennsylvania outdoor news. And there's an effort in Pennsylvania to reintroduce pine martens. Uh, you know, cute little guys that for the most part are just going to eat squirrels and they're native there and and you know it's just some folks trying to say let's let's reintroduce them uh you'd be shocked at how controversial that is a lot of folks not happy about the prospect of releasing you know another predator albeit a small one on the pennsylvania landscape so it's a (laughs) it's a highly controversial proposal i i think part of it is they're they're afraid they're going to eat rough grouse uh, and, I, and I'm sure pine martins probably eat a few rough grouse. Uh, that's not something we worry about as much here. We're, believe it or not, one of the best states in the country still for rough grouse hunting. So, um, uh, you know, pine martin are just not, there's not a lot of drama around pine martin in Minnesota. But out in, in PA where they're talking about uh, reintroducing these guys, it's a uh, it's a pretty big story. So, um, anyway, the um, Check uh, just just a little aside there. I thought about I was thinking about fishers and pine martins since uh, it's really the one week a year when you've got a trapping season for those. And and that, like I say, that has wrapped up now. Uh, in a few minutes uh, after we get in a break, we're going to talk with Ellen Candler. Ellen is the gal uh, at the U of M. She's a postdoc researcher there who's done the so-called awful study. O f f a l. She's the gal doing the the study on what happens to deer gut piles after hunters uh, shoot the deer and they and they. You know, leave the gut pile on the landscape. She's researched, you know, what happens to those. So she's joined us before and talked about that. Uh, we're actually going to talk about a different study that Ellen has done uh, that is studying how white-tailed deer react to different sort of scents on the landscape. Uh, she did it in Michigan, and she's trying to understand, you know, if if a deer encounters wolf scent, what does it do? How does it behave differently? And And she's got some results back that are actually already pretty interesting, and we'll uh, talk about that with her in a few minutes. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, Tony Peterson is going to join us. Tony, a white-tailed deer hunter extraordinaire, one of my favorite people. Uh, Old-school deer hunter, man. This guy is he's hardcore bow hunter, and he's younger. He's a younger guy. I don't know if he's 40 yet, but uh, we still got two weeks left of uh, bow hunting for deer or crossbow hunting. That goes until December 31st, the last day of the year. So still some opportunities to hunt white-tailed deer with bow, and uh, we're going to get some tactics and some thoughts about how the the deer season has gone across uh, the region. He hunts multiple states uh, in in a in a little while with Tony. Uh, before uh, the end of the show, I want to talk about Dennis Anderson's column. Speaking of bow hunting, uh, he he uh, was he wrote a, a piece about crossbows. Uh, the title "Crossbows Undermine Spirit of Bow Hunting." That's a topic that I have discussed here uh, quite a bit. But I, I thought Dennis had some good points that I would like to uh, bring up uh, before we go. And I guess maybe final thought before we grab a break is, uh, you know, yeah, I, I know everyone's maybe tired of hearing about the weather and how warm it is, but it really does have ramifications for ice fishing. Uh, we had some ice building here in the Twin Cities, uh, driving around Friday afternoon in the rain, watching all these ponds melt. I'm thinking this is not good for the ice fishing season. Uh, we're talking poten- a potential record high, I think, on on uh, uh, Christmas Eve day, possibly, uh, again, next weekend, talking mid-40s. So not good for ice fishing in the metro area. I think it's better up north. I'll try to get some more reports in and talk about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but, um, you know, 
it's bad for ice fishing. I, we're going to have ice fishing. I think January and February are going to be good as long as we don't get a ton of snow that wrecks the ice. But the you know if there's a silver lining to this El Nino or whatever is doing this to this December is that it's good for the deer, right? We need a break. We had a rough winter last year, the third snowiest winter on record in the Twin Cities. And go figure, that probably played a big role in why there weren't as many deer in the landscape, and it affected our deer kill here this fall. You know, if we have a, a we have a tame December unfolding, if that holds, really these days up front mean a lot. The deer are, are, have had a just great fall. The days are going to start getting longer, right, in a few days. Uh, there's going to be more sunlight, and you know, yeah, we could we could still have a rough winter, but the number of days that contribute to the high, what they call winter severity index reading, by definition, can that that reading can't get as high now that we're almost through December and we don't have December days contributing to a rough winter. So, uh, I think you know, there, it's bad for ice, but it potentially could be good for deer and deer hunting, you know, next year and the year beyond if the if the deer get a break here. Speaking of break, why don't I get in a commercial break? We will return. We're going to talk with Ellen Candler from the University of Minnesota about her latest deer research study. When we return, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, December 17th, 2023. And as I alluded to last week, I think it's official now. There shouldn't be any firearms hunting left in the state this weekend, we had a special chronic wasting disease management zone firearms hunt, but that is uh, wrapped up. That started Friday and went through sunset today. So we still have the bow season, which now includes crossbows through the end of the year. But muzzleloader, firearms, handguns, that is all done. Hey, we had a really interesting story in this past week's print edition of Outdoor News, and it's at OutdoorNews.com, by a regular contributor named Roy Heileman. Uh, he broke down a study that was uh, recently published by someone from our very own University of Minnesota. The, most of the research took place in Michigan. But uh, I want to chat now with the person behind that study, Ellen Candler. Ellen is a postdoc associate at the University of Minnesota's Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. She joins us now. I think she's joined us before, right? How are you, Ellen? <laughs> I'm great. Thanks for having me back. We've talked to you before because you've worked on the OFL study, the uh, so-called gut pile study, and, and maybe we'll circle back to that at the end and talk about that for a moment. But I want to talk about this latest study. You, you recently just had this peer-reviewed study published, correct? And what, what were you looking at? You were trying to determine basically how deer respond to predator scents. Would that be a quick way to summarize it? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good summary. Yeah, so this paper was recently published in uh, Ecology and Evolution, and we were really looking at kind of our, our big overarching question was, do predators make hunting harder, particularly predator scent at deer bait piles? So we don't have baiting here in Minnesota. I actually think that's a good thing. Uh, and that's why you went to Michigan, where they do still have baiting allowed for white-tailed deer hunting in both the upper and lower peninsulas. Uh, they also have, what, wolves in the north, but not so much in the south, correct? Correct, yeah. And Michigan really gave a great opportunity for this question because they allow baiting. Currently, uh, I'd have to look again and see what the baiting laws are in Michigan after this study was conducted, there's been some reduction in, in baiting in the Lower Peninsula because of chronic wasting disease concerns. Right. But while the study was going on, baiting occurred across the state. But also Michigan is separated uh, into the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula with really limited connectivity. And that mm -hmm. limited connectivity keeps wolves 
primarily in the Upper Peninsula, and there are no wolves or functionally no wolves in the Lower Peninsula. Right, yeah, you got the good old Straits of Mackinac there. So tell us how you went about this study. What did, what did you do to, to see how deer would react to the presence of predators, even when the predators weren't there, correct? Correct, yeah. So we set up what's called a backy design, so before-after control impact experiment. We had the two areas, one in the Upper Peninsula and one in the Lower Peninsula, and in each area we had 15 bait sites that we set. Uh, and those were baited with corn per Michigan DNR regulations. Uh, and then for a few weeks, we just baited them. We visited all the sites and baited them all the same. And then after a few weeks, we treated the sites. Five in each area were treated with wolf urine, and that was supposed to represent wolves visiting and scent marking that site. Five were treated in each area with water, and that was the control. And then five were treated with lemon, lemon juice. And that was to represent a novel scent. Um, and so in the lower peninsula where there aren't wolves, if we noticed that deer were reacting to the lemon juice and the wolf urine, we could kind of maybe assume that maybe they were just reacting to a novel scent. Whereas if they reacted to the wolf urine and not the lemon juice, then maybe they were reacting to and, and detecting a predator. So that mm -hmm. lemon juice was intended to kind of tease out that relationship. What was the distance between these 15 sites? Was it like dozens of miles? Uh, you know, that's a big area you're potentially talking about. Were they spread out pretty, pretty thoroughly? They were pretty spread out. The minimum distance we had, I believe, was a mile, and that was based on literature of what maybe a deer could detect a uh, wolf. So where were you mostly in the Upper Peninsula? I'm just curious how close we, you were to, to Minnesota and Wisconsin. Yeah, we were kind of in the central Upper Peninsula, uh, mm -hmm. near the Lake Michigan um, kind of border in the Hiawatha okay. National Forest. Gotcha. I know the area very well. Uh, we should point out there is still some baiting allowed in Wisconsin also, although because of chronic wasting disease regulations, they have uh, pretty much eliminated baiting uh, in most of that state too, again, which I think is a good thing. We're chatting with Ellen Candler. She is a postdoc associate at the University of Minnesota. We're talking to her about some research she did involving white-tailed deer and how they react to predator scents in the fine state of Michigan. Well, let's talk results here a little bit, Ellen. What did you see? Uh, what kind of conclusions did you draw? How did deer react? Yeah, we were really uh, interested and really expected that deer in the Upper Peninsula would react to those wolf urine-treated sites because they have experience with wolves, they've lived with them now for a while, and we expected that in the Lower Peninsula, maybe they wouldn't react because even though they've adapted and evolved with wolves as a predator, wolves were extirpated and they haven't lived with deer for a long time, so maybe deer wouldn't, wouldn't react to them uh, at these sites. We looked at how many deer visited the sites, how many deer in those groups were vigilant at the sites, and then what the group size was. And we expected that at the wolf-treated sites in the Upper Peninsula, that those all those metrics would increase. Uh, deer would be more vigilant, they'd be uh, in larger groups. And we really didn't find that pattern. Um, and that was a bit of a surprise to us. Wolves excuse me, deer didn't increase their group size too much, um, maybe a tiny bit, but like by half a deer, which can't have half a deer, so maybe not right. biologically significant. They weren't really more vigilant uh, and they, they didn't increase or decrease the number of visits to those sites. How exactly did you monitor this? Was it, it was with trail cameras, is that correct? And, and how do you quantify quote unquote deer vigilance? Is it just a matter of, do they look scared? Do they look alert? Yeah, good question. Yes, we used remote cameras. So we had one remote camera at every site recording almost continuously um, images. 
And we defined vigilance, and this has been defined in the literature before, as either uh, vigilant is a deer with its head up and non-vigilant is head down or below hmm. the shoulders. Okay. And so the general conclusion was that these scents, especially at Sound Lake in the Lower Peninsula, didn't have much effect on deer. Is that right? Yeah. For the metrics I mentioned before, they didn't have much of an effect in either the Lower or the Upper Peninsula. Um, we did also look at activity and deer in the Upper Peninsula did reduce their activity kind of in the uh, evening hours so around like 6 p.m. where you would expect wolves to be hunting. They reduced their visitation to wolf-treated sites. So they did have a little bit of impact at those wolf-treated sites as far as deer activity goes. Okay, so these are deer that presumably are very familiar with wolves. They live in wolf country. And when you treated those sites with wolf urine, those deer did, did they avoid the areas? I would, you would say, or there was just less deer activity in those areas? Uh, there was probably the same amount of activity, but they reduced their activity in kind of uh, risky times. They didn't reduce their activity spatially, but temporally. Okay. And, and those risky times, again, was basically dusk or, or after dark? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Interesting. The other conclusion that I believe Roy mentioned was had to do with like vegetative cover. And that seemed to maybe be the most practical takeaway for hunters. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. And that was the most interesting conclusion um, that we found as well. The most interesting result that we found, we measured vegetation at each of these sites. The way we did that is we stood at the bait pile where a deer would be and kind of got to a level where, where deer would be looking from and measured how much vegetation was around the bait site and how dense that vegetation was. And we did that a couple times because we were measuring in the fall. So that vegetation and the density changed as leaves left the trees. And then we, we charted that and modeled that uh, compared to, to the vigilance we saw. And what we found was as the percentage of vegetation cover increased, vigilance of deer also increased, but only in the Upper Peninsula and not at all in the Lower Peninsula. All right. So let me see if I can, can summarize that. So deer in areas with wolves were more vigilant in areas with a lot of trees and a lot of brush and a lot of cover, presumably because they couldn't, they couldn't see as far. Yep, exactly. And that was, that was at all of the sites. So no matter how we treated, whether there was wolf urine or lemon or water, it mm. was, it was, didn't matter. Okay. So deer like an area where they can, they can potentially see predators coming from a long ways away. I mean, that, that's kind of yeah. a simple yeah. <laughs> takeaway, right? Okay, interesting. <laughs> and any final takeaways for hunters, uh, the, you know, two-legged predators, I, I guess, uh, put your stand up in a place where deer can see further because they're less vigilant. Yeah, that's what I'd say. And I think a lot of hunters do that. You know, if you think about where your deer stand might be, it's on the edge of a, a farm field or, you know, something like that. But that seems to be based on our conclusions, at least in wolf areas where wolves are present, putting it in an area where deer can see a little further might be more beneficial. Any next steps here with this study? Do you, do you see a follow-up study, perhaps? Any way to try to pull off a similar study in Minnesota? Any plans to do that, Ellen? We don't currently have any plans to do that, but it would be an interesting study to conduct in Minnesota, particularly because there isn't baiting here. So looking at uh, a similar study, maybe in the southern part of Minnesota, where there um, are not wolves or fewer wolves versus the wolf zone in northern Minnesota, it's a study that could be done. 
baiting makes it a little easier to capture those images because you have, you know, a rich food source and a reliable food source. You're going to be getting deer on camera a lot easier, but it's definitely something that could be done. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, Ellen, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for the research. I don't have time to circle back on the awful study, uh, but if folks want information on that, uh, that's still ongoing, right? Where can they chime in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the awful study that's conducted here in Minnesota, um, if you go to awful at umn.edu, you can find all of that information. That's O-F-F-A-L? Yes, correct. At umn.edu. Yes. Perfect. Ellen, thanks a lot for joining us. Have a great holiday season. All right. Thank you. You too. Take care. We're going to get in a break. We will have more of the broadcast after these messages. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, December 17th, 2023. Thank you, Ellen Candler, who joined us in the last segment. She's a researcher at the University of Minnesota's Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology Department. Some interesting insights for deer hunters on where to place their stands in that last segment. Next weekend already, off and running with the holidays. But until the end of the year, we still have some bow hunting, some archery deer hunting opportunities out there. Speaking of deer, I was looking back and our friend Tony Peterson had not been with us since earlier this fall. And I'm like, wow, well, where did the fall go? We ought to check in with Tony right now. And he jumps in with us here on today's broadcast. Tony, how are you doing? Can you believe we only got, what, two weeks of December left, huh? Uh, no, I can't believe it. It's it's absolutely crazy. Twin Cities-based Tony Peterson is one of the top deer hunters that I know. And that's why you'll see his name in a lot of the best hunting magazines and websites in the country. Tony, have you been traveling a lot? You told me off air that you did a fair amount of black powder hunting uh, during the muzzleloader seasons, huh? I did, and it, yeah, I've been traveling a lot. It it feels good to uh, sort of have the season narrowed down now to a little bit of late season bow hunting left and a little bit of pheasant hunting. But yeah, I spent I spent quite a bit of time with a muzzleloader out there this year in Minnesota or other states. Where were you, Tony? Uh, all in Minnesota, but I traveled to Western Minnesota a couple times to hunt. I'm kind of. Uh, Kind of on a mission to try to find a buck in the cattails and kill him, Hmm. and I did not succeed, but man, I got close and I had a lot of fun. I know a lot of people who really enjoy that black powder hunt because they're out there with, you know, a smoke pole, some some sort of firearm, uh, but there's not a lot of people, and it's it's some good opportunities. How did you do? Did you you fill that tag? You know what? I ended up... uh killing two does here close to my house just north of the cities which was awesome because that was kind of my goal i had a landowner who wanted some meat and i wanted just one more for the freezer and i had one really good afternoon sit that i accomplished those goals but i'm pretty lucky guy i get to hunt a lot of different places and i'll tell you this year had a good year for myself and my daughters but the most fun i think i had in any deer hunt this year was when i was hunting western minnesota i was just hunting public land and I had found a little concentration of deer using these this cattail slough right in the middle of this big chunk of public. And one morning I posted up to catch him coming back, and I didn't see a single deer, but I got a little bit of fresh snow. And so I'm like, I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna go see how they got in there, see if I can find some tracks because they definitely had gone around where I thought they were gonna go. And I got on a fresh track and started following it, and ended up getting right next to a doe. I didn't have a doe tag for over there, but she took off, and I'm like, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can find a buck track and i ended up getting on seven different deer tracks in the snow in the cattails and i jumped every one of those deer including three bucks and had that hammer back a couple times and just couldn't <laughs> quite get a shot but i was just like it was so fun you know we don't 
a lot of the places I hunt, that just wouldn't be possible. The, pro, the you know the parcels are too small, mm-hmm. but that was just the right mix, and man, that was a blast. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of chatter about where are the deer and the low deer harvest. Uh, last, yeah, I'm, I was working on my year in review story, and a year ago we were lamenting how the deer kill was down, and now it's it's down even more. It's down another seven percent from a year ago. Well, what do you make of some of that? It, and it's not just here. Wisconsin is down. Uh, there's other states down. Nebraska's kill was way down, and by the way, they don't have any wolves there. What are you seeing nationwide? I mean, is is this something that all states are dealing with, lower deer numbers, or does it seem a little bit unique to uh, the, the great north woods? I hunted quite a few different states this year, and I saw good deer numbers everywhere except northern Wisconsin where I hunt. It was rough over there. In fact, I hunted I hunt there more than anywhere because that's where I take my daughters. Mm-hmm. And I, I hunted all or parts of 22 days this year over there and saw five deer. It took me 20 days to see a doe over there. And you so the, hunt hard. I mean, you know, I hear that from some other folks, and I'm like, okay, you know, is this a weekend warrior kind of thing? But I know you. You hunt hard. You get deep into the woods. You're covering ground. You've got multiple sets of eyes out there. And if you're not seeing many deer, they're not there. They're not there. And we usually, I, I usually don't, but the girls can get, you know, we can get doe tags over there. So I usually kind of green light them on whatever. And after about midpoint of summer, I was like, I don't think we should be shooting any does over here, girls. Like, <laughs> I couldn't find a fawn. And what I realized, what was crazy about it was, even though that lack of deer, I mean, we were seeing a deer like once every four or five days was kind of the average. Mm-hmm. We ended up, uh, my one daughter ended up arrowing a buck on a dec- that ran into a decoy. Only deer we saw in an all-day sit but like one of the coolest experiences ever just he was like he saw that decoy put on a show came right in and Mm. she shot him at 14 yards and then the next week i went back and hunted for myself and i'm starting to realize on these low deer density situations we kind of use that as an excuse to not hunt very hard right or to not scout or not sit Mm -hmm. all day and i was like if i don't put in a lot of hours there's no way and so it was all day sits for a while, but I had the same thing happen where a buck finally came out of the swamp, looked at that decoy and ran in and I killed him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm starting to kind of revise. I mean, hunting around low deer density sucks. I get why people complain about it, but there are ways to do it. There are, there are things you can do, but it's like, it's pretty easy to go the other way and just not put in a lot of effort right. sometimes because you just, you know, it's going to be tough. Yeah. It becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that, that's some of what we're, we're seeing is there's low deer numbers. So fewer people are hunting and so they're killing even fewer deer and the, and the deer kill continues to trend lower. What are you chalking it up to? Is it a high predator load, bears, wolves, bobcats, coyotes? Or, or is it more of a function of, you know, for years we've been putting a lot of pressure on these deer herds with a lot of antlerless tags. Uh, you know, we complain about low deer densities, but there's a lot of other folks that are just fine with low deer densities out there, a good solid chunk of the population. Uh, what do you think's going on? All of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, I think last winter was way rougher than we thought okay. for, for starters. I mean, it. you know, a lot of people were worried about last winter, but a lot of trees got knocked down in treetops. So there was kind of this, I think it was a false hope that there was, extra browse that they could reach and i just don't i think last winter was way harder on them than we thought and then you know if you're in a predator dense area obviously that's going to take a toll on them and we we had pictures of wolves all season long lots Mm -hmm. of fawn eaters and deer eaters yeah and yeah you're right i mean it's pretty easy to get tags and we're we're killing a (laughs) lot of deer so there's you know it's a multifaceted thing a lot of people say 
you know, they want to just blame the wolves or they want to just blame too many tags or, you know, take your pick. Uh But usually it's a lot more nuanced than that. And there's, you know, you factor in a really bad winter once every five or 10 years that sets them back. And then you add in some of these other factors and it's, it can be pretty rough. Uh, it was the third snowiest winter in the history of the Twin Cities and, and a good chunk of Minnesota last year. So, yeah, go figure that we probably had some deer starve, and we had some does that were probably not dropping as many fawns this past spring. So, yeah, uh, th- there you go. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Dreesline here with Tony Peterson. Tony is a hardcore deer hunter, writes for the TheMeatEater.com. And uh, we're catching up on how this season went for him. Uh, Tony, we got a couple weeks of the late season bow hunt remaining. I guess maybe the good news for deer is that this winter is so far looking pretty tame. How, what does that mean for deer hunters? There's not a lot of tracking snow out there. How are you approaching this late season, given the fact that it's it's been you know it's been pretty warm and, and there's not a lot of snow on the ground? You know, the no snow, the no cold thing is it can be viewed as a negative if you were you know if your plan is to go sit that cut cornfield and kill them like you normally would in a late season situation this might not be it the same way but i'll tell you what i'm kind of torn because i've been enjoying hunting a lot because it's it's pretty rare when you can suit up kind of like midweight layers and head out and it's really really nice Mm -hmm. weather Mm -hmm. and i've been seeing a lot of deer i had a really good muzzleloader hunt i'm i'm kind of like you know, it's it's a different late season than we're used to, but it's it's pretty good, and they they're they're out there moving. So, from a hunting perspective, what are you doing different? You say it's a different late season than normal. How does that affect your tactics, Tony? Any anything you're you're doing different? Any areas you're hunting that you wouldn't be hunting um, in a normal late December? Kind of. I mean, I, I don't I don't really have a place to hunt that has like a unbelievable food source, like a destination food source. And so I tend to kind of revert back to like the way I would hunt in October, which is, you know, staging areas, travel routes, some kind of pinch point or something. You know, one of the things that I've noticed a lot as I as I late season hunt more is how often deer are on their feet in the cover this time of year browsing away and just just kind of doing their thing. And so we pretty easy to sort of limit yourself and think, well, I have to get on the food. You know, like I have to be in that place they're going to and then not hunt mornings and not hunt travel routes. But if you get out there right now, those those deer are covering some ground and there's there's opportunities. You kind of got to look at it like a couple weeks before the rut or a couple weeks before the gun season where you're hunting in the cover and and working them as they're going to and from bedding and food. Are you giving the does a break here in Minnesota, Tony, because of some of our concerns about lower densities and just uh, just targeting bucks? It depends where I'm at. So I did I did shoot two does with my muzzleloader, but it was on a farm that's being totally developed right now. Mm. So by spring, there'll be only a little bit of woods there. So it's like a, those deer aren't going to be there anyway. They're going to move off into a park or something. Sure. But yeah, a lot I'm a lot of places I hunt. Those are the only two does I shot this year. I'll put it that way. Okay. And I hunted five states probably in a bunch of different areas. And are you seeing a lot of crossbows out there? I'm just curious, anecdotally, uh, this is the first year you can use crossbows during the bow season. Are guys taking advantage of that? They sure are. <laughs> <laughs> they sure are, man. We're selling a lot of crossbows, you think? I believe that to be true, yes. Okay. All right. Well, and, and yeah, that's fine. It's legal now. That's indeed sounds like what's happening on the ground. All right, Tony. Well, hey, thanks for uh, catching up. I guess bottom line, there's some opportunity to get out there and chase deer with your uh, your bow or your crossbow for another couple of weeks and uh, encourage people to do that. 
Tony, hey, gosh, good stuff. Great discussion. Thanks for, for uh, checking in. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Tony Peterson. Now read him at TheMeatEater.com. Let's uh, get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline with you here for a few final minutes of this week's broadcast on December 17th, 2023. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining me. Lots to talk about. I'm having a good time. Happy holidays, everybody. I should have mentioned that earlier. Uh, next weekend, big holiday Christmas weekend. Uh, two weeks from now, already New Year's weekend. So I hope everybody has a great couple of uh, weeks with family, friends, and enjoys this time of year. Uh, a couple of closing thoughts here. I thought Dennis Anderson had a good column on Friday talking about crossbows, crossbows undermine spirit of bow hunting, something I've talked about here. I'm not necessarily a big fan of crossbows during the bow hunting season, and, and Dennis uh, did at the Star Tribune did a great job kind of uh, – articulating why he thinks uh, along those same lines, uh, crediting Fred Bear, uh, the great Fred Bear, with uh, creating generations of bow hunters in the country. Uh, I, I did not know Papa Bear, as he was uh, known within the, uh, the bow hunting industry. I worked for a bow hunting magazine in the mid-1990s. I worked for a guy named Mike Strandland, who eventually himself would be inducted into the uh, Bow Hunters Hall of Fame. Mike, one of the best hunters I've ever known. He passed, I was just looking, Mike passed 10 years ago, uh, tragically. Uh, we lost uh, a mentor of mine. Mike brought me to the Twin Cities to work for Bow Hunting uh, World Magazine. When uh, While I was, uh, prior to that, I was an outdoors writer at a, at a small daily newspaper down in Winona, Minnesota. And so uh, Mike frequently told me how he was inspired by Fred Bear, and he, uh, he had met uh, Fred and uh, people within the industry, like I say, I, I knew guys like uh, uh, Dick Latimer, folks like that, longtime uh, members of the archery industry who would talk about how, you know, Fred not only inspired a lot of people to take up bow hunting, but, uh, you know, built this industry, this this bow hunting industry that exists to this day. And, and Dennis lamenting, again, that the crossbows are a big part of the season, the bow hunting season here in Minnesota, like they now are in Michigan as well as in Wisconsin, he said um, he's got some data here, and I, I got to give Dennis credit. I don't even know how he got it. He said the whitetail killed by archery is about the same as last year. Of the twenty-one thousand six hundred archery felled deer, he put archery in quotes this year. Forty-three uh, percent were taken by crossbows. I'm not even sure how we know that because we don't have separate licenses for crossbows, and uh, and you, know, you got to be careful calling them traditional bows, compound bows or recurves. You know, Fred Bear hunted with a recurve. I'm not sure Fred Bear would have liked the the modern compounds. I guess my only beef with Dennis's column was it it felt a little like it should have been written eight months ago. Uh, this, I mean, they're here. Crossbows are here. They're part of the archery season now, and I they are not going away. This would have been a great column to write to try to motivate people to stopping crossbows being part of the archery season back in, you know, March or April. Um, you know, once something like this passes, it's very, very difficult to to remove them. And, I, you know, I don't feel strongly about that one way or the other. And the only point I would that Dennis kind of didn't get to, he didn't mention in his column, I, I presume he knows this, is that a number of Southeast Asian legislators were really crucial, I think, in passing this. I think crossbows are, are quite popular within the Southeast Asian community here in Minnesota. Uh, as I believe I've talked about on the show in the past, uh, Asian Americans are one of the biggest uh, per capita 
members of the, of the hunting and fishing fraternities out there. So there's there's a lot of uh, Southeast Asians who are active in hunting in this state, and they like crossbows, and I think some of the legislators help carry it. Uh, but it, it passed not not only with that constituency, but with uh, other folks that want to see wanted to see crossbows. I mean, the archery industry at one time opposed crossbows. Uh, later on, they realized, well, this is an opportunity for us to sell, you know, a crossbow to people that's been using a compound bow for years, and uh, and make some new sales. So, uh, again, Dennis doesn't. Uh, he he's pretty clear he doesn't like it. But I, I gotta say, I don't think uh, I don't think crossbows are going anywhere for uh, for a long time. Uh, gosh, I, uh, so many other things to get to. We had a big uh, eagle poaching case out in Montana. Uh, I will have that's on at outdoornews.com if you want to read about that. I'll also have it in next week's print version. Again, I want to wish happy holidays to everybody. I hope uh, folks uh, you still got a couple weeks to get out bow hunting. Uh, there's still some small game hunting that goes uh, with with grouse and pheasants till pretty much roughly the end of the year and then of course you got other opportunities into 2024. Everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Jerry signing off for WCCO Outdoors.